Welcome to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author, Christine Carlson. Chris shares don't sweat wisdom to help you achieve greater mental health, self-compassion, and better communication with family, friends, and coworkers. Listen in and learn simple ways to live your most vibrant life of joy. And welcome back, everyone, to Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. We are living the big stuff. This is Christine Carlson. Before we begin with our wonderful interview today, let's go ahead and take a golden pause. So wherever you are, if you can, sit comfortably in a chair and or sit on the floor, sit Indian style, um, leaning back against something. But if you can't do that and you're driving or you're doing an activity, just use this as a deep breathing exercise to get really present, really engaged and in your breath and in your body. But let's go ahead if you can and sit and close your eyes and just begin to breathe together. Breathing in through your nose, allowing your chest and your belly to fully expand, taking in the fullness of your breath, exhaling, releasing and relaxing. And breathing in pure golden sunlight to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers and your toes. Exhaling, releasing, and letting go. And breathing in pure golden sunlight through your core, through your heart, through your mind. On the exhale, just let go of what doesn't serve you well. And breathing in pure golden sunlight to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers and your toes. Exhaling, releasing and relaxing a little bit more. And breathing in pure golden sunlight to every cell of your being. Place your hand on your heart, activating your heart, opening your heart. And spend a moment thinking of one thing you feel grateful for. And as you fill your entire being with pure golden gratitude, just exhale, relax, and let go a little bit more. And filling your entire being from your heart to your mind to your whole body with golden gratitude. On the exhale, just allow yourself to fill like a cup with pure joy. And breathing in pure golden gratitude to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers and your toes. Just exhaling, releasing, and relaxing a little bit deeper. And breathing in pure golden gratitude to every cell of your being. On the exhale, allow that gratitude to wash over you like a cascading waterfall of pure joy. And breathing in pure golden gratitude, filling your whole body, your heart, your mind, your entire body with golden gratitude. On the exhale, allow it to wash over you again, like a cascading waterfall of pure joy. And taking one last deep breath in of pure golden gratitude. On the exhale, go ahead and open your eyes. Ah, well, I am so excited to bring this wonderful man to you today. His name is Paul Zeitz. To respond to challenging times, I'm so impressed that um, this humanitarian 
um, and social justice advocate, Dr. Paul Zeitz, has identified a new syndrome called revolutionary optimism, an infectious, self-created way of thinking and living on the path of love. Is part of our midlife meaning series. I just really was so excited to bring Paul in because I kind of watched him unfold. He was part of Deborah Evans and my um, book group, our book incubator with book doulas. And I just, I've been just enjoying him so much. He started a new website. So go and take a peek. It's um, unifymovements.org. And Paul, welcome. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to share you with my audience. Thank you, Chris. I'm honored to be here with you. It's really a great joy. Thank you. You know, Paul, so let's go back. Let's talk a little bit about your history um, as a doctor, what you've done in your life, your story, because you've really, you're really going through kind of a real true reinvention the last you know, few years, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like I started a new chapter earlier this year. I, I kind of view my life as a book of chapters, you know, unfolding stories about how things are going. And I figured that out when I wrote my memoir, Waging Justice, which I published in, in 2018. And uh, I, I had to study my life to understand what had just happened the 53 years before then. And I also did it for my own self-healing. You know, it was like a healing opportunity for myself to reflect and study myself. And then, of course, to share and offer uh, ideas and perspectives to others. And uh, that, and I, it was a legacy piece for me at that time, actually, because I had gone to a bunch of funerals uh, and I actually learned more about the person at their funeral than I knew about the person when they were alive. And it really oh, wow. upset me. It really upset me. It's like, I realized how non-present I am with people that are living. And I made a commitment as part of uh, sharing my uh, memoir, Waging Justice, for my sons and others, you know, like I wanted them to know the story of their dad. At least it's my version of my story. And uh, uh, it, it, for their legacy, for, for as a legacy opportunity and uh, for went before they were in my life. And even while I was raising them, they didn't know what was going on for me. Uh, so it, that it could help them understand their own their own parents and more. So that was the idea. So waging justice, why is it called waging justice? I haven't had a chance to take a peek at your book yet. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so um, it's a story of my life from birth till 53. I had a kind of interesting upbringing, both a lot of love, but a lot some trauma. It turns out I didn't know this at the time. But in my late 40s, I figured out that I was a survivor of childhood sexual violence at the hands of my father, and that there was like a rat's nest of uh, intrafamilial sexual violence going on, not only in my family, but in the broader extended family. And I didn't know this till the last 15 years or so. So anyway, I went through life uh, and I was really interested in chemistry and biology. I went to college, was a biology major, biochemistry. I was so fascinated by the machinations of how our human body works. Like, I, it really caught my uh, attention. And then I decided to go to medical school uh, right after college. And during that time, I became uh, politically, I became a political advocate. I, you know, I realized in my third year of medical school 
that I, you know, while I want to get the best medical care possible for myself and my loved ones and really for everyone, I just didn't want to work in the hospital system in the curative care mode. I wanted to do public health and preventive medicine. <clears throat> and I shifted over to that and I went into international public health, did a preventive medicine residency at Johns Hopkins University and a master's in public health. And uh, I then began like looking for like my purpose, you know? So at that time there were uh, 37,000 children under five years of age that were dying literally every single day from preventable causes, from a vaccine preventable disease or from pneumonia or from diarrhea. So I was like, oh, well, that's like an interesting challenge. What, how can we like deliver the solutions that are available in the wealthy nations to equitably de deliver them globally that that implementation gap i called it then so that i pursued that you know and i i worked on that i worked for the u.s government i worked around the world in guatemala bolivia india and then i had the opportunity to go to africa and i got i fell in love with africa i don't know i i think i had a former life there or something like i like my body just my energy field just like resonates there I think I might have had a little bit of white savior syndrome too back then. Um, so just to be honest and clarifying that. So I was working and living in Africa at the time of the global AIDS pandemic. And um, I was, my wife and I were having children and we ended up moving to Africa with three small kids. Oh, wow. Four-year-old, a one-year-old one and a three-month-old back in, uh, wait, oh my God, my brain, 1990. What year is it? Um, the 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 dates I'll I'll get to in a second. <laughs> but anyway, the 1990s yeah. that works. The 1990s, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I became an I you know I was living in the dying fields of the AIDS pandemic where people were literally dropping like flies. Economically productive adults, 15 to 44, parents, workers, my peers, my colleagues at work were all like just dying from AIDS. Wow. And so I had an I had an epiphany and a, an awakening, I would say, a transformation where I said, you know, I'm not going to stand by and just watch this. I have to do something different. So I became an activist, an advocate, and uh, I came back to Washington and did political advocacy professionally since uh, the year 2000, and have been doing it ever since. And it is an art of doing advocacy, campaigning, and movement building. And so what I realized as I studied my journey in writing my memoir is that I am a doctor. So I have an obligation to inform you and your listeners that I have something called revolutionary optimism. It's a syndrome. It's highly contagious. It's not treatable. There's no known cure or a vaccine. <laughs> and it is basically a choice of living on the path of love and opening up the love field for all of humanity and actually for all of life. And it's about being relentless and tireless in the pursuit of the, creating the world that we would like to see, a world where there's love at the center and we can build a social, economic and political systems with love at the center, but we have to do it together. This is a big we moment. Wow, what I, what I just love that I heard in all of that was that you are a man that is really driven by your why, you know, like why asking yourself, why am I doing this? You know, you're, you're driven by this deep need to 
make a difference and to serve. And I love that so much because I feel like when people like you and me, and, and there's so many people that when that is our driving force, when the question is all about how can we make a difference, then that's when you are honoring your legacy, right? Yeah, I mean, I wake up every day and ask the question, how can I serve, you know? Like, how can I serve today? And some days it might be serving this body mm -hmm, <laughs> or this yeah. tired mind, or it might be serving my family or my friends, and and it might be serving my community or some organization I'm affiliated with or, you know, the broader world. So I think it's an open, I, it's a daily inquiry for me, actually, to figure out, like, okay, how can I serve today? Because uh, my family and I uh, studied with uh, uh, Swami Sachidananda, a, uh, a Hindu uh, Swami, uh, who created a, a movement actually called in Yogaville, and it's a spiritual movement. And he came up with this mantra, love all, serve all. So oh. uh, we, we live that uh, as our family. That's our family intention, you know. And so I live into that, like, what does it mean to serve today under the premise of loving all, serving all? I love that so much. I um, Richard and I studied with um, uh, Satya Sai Baba when he was mm -hmm. on the planet. And one of, you know, his day, one of his great, he has all those same kinds of messages being Hindu is like, you know, start your day with love, live your day with love, 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 love. And it, you know, it, it, it seems so simple, but when that's the premise of everything, when that's at the heart, literally the heart of who you are, and, and you're constantly, that, that it becomes your mantra, right? It becomes the way that you just live. I mean, talking about revolutionary optimism, that, that is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's sourced from uh, living the path of love. And so for me, that's what I've identified, you know, and when you're living the path of love, it starts with and includes self love. Because, you know, for me, I was a young boy, I had childhood trauma, I hated myself, I did like decades of self hatred, self flagellation, you know, like the, the tapes that were running in my mind, I was overcoming them by being a doctor and having a family and externally appearing a certain way. But I struggled internally with taming the dragon within you know and i uh really struggled for a long time I, and i pursued every possible modality to try to get rid of that you know i called it a pharaoh film factory you know the enslaver within you know was putting out these films that were bestsellers in my mind <laughs> um and it was tough to you know it, it's been a journey to try to like deal with that so um, yeah, I think uh, revolutionary optimism is starting with the path of love, self-love, loving relationships with others, every other, uh, and then spreading that out in terms of making sure you have healthy, loving relationships, you know, setting appropriate boundaries, detoxifying the field, you know, being forgiving, learning how to not take things personally, um, things like that. Then the idea that I said already, loving all, serving all. So like taking a broad view of all of humanity and of all life as we know it. And then our planet, our beloved place where we live, you know, like creating a love relationship with the earth, the beauty, the atmosphere, everything about it that enables us to even be on this podcast together. You know, it's such a gift 
it's such an honor to so I have a loving relationship with at all those levels. Ah, uh, that's so beautiful. And you know, you just bring up I, I want to go back to something you talked about earlier because it's um so appropriate for this meaning and midlife series that we're doing right now. Um you know, when you said that you you felt like you got to know people um from their memorial service more than you knew them in life and that that was sort of a driving factor for you to become more present, you know? Mm. And don't you think that is such a midlife moment for all of us, you know, to be sitting, I think before we started recording, we were talking about how, um, you know, I'm turning 60 in about two weeks. And one of the things that I've really been super aware of is that time no longer stretches out before me, that I'm suddenly at the last, you know, potentially the last quarter, if I'm lucky, of my life or less. And, you know, 20 years, I mean, I think this next 10 years is significant. And 10 years goes by so fast. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, and so I'm really like, I'm trying to really grasp that, that I don't have time to tarry any longer. You know, I need to get on it and, and really honor, you know, this, this, this health that I've been given for who, who knows how long it lasts. Um, you know, just this energy that I have for who knows how long it lasts. And, and that really honoring the meaning of what's behind the things that I do, what's the meaning behind it for others, you know? And that's why that key question that you ask yourself every day is so powerful. If everyone, could ask themselves, how could I serve today? Then that change, that's a, such a game changer because then life isn't about how can I um, fulfill my desires today or what do I want? It's more about what do I want to give? How can I mm. give of myself? And I love that so much. That is part of um, my internal prayer and everything I do is the same in a way because I ask myself, um, to, you know, to allow the divine to come through me and to mm. be um, an instrument of divine light and love. And mm. so I ask, you know, every day, well, how can I share that in my words? How can I share that in my thoughts? How can I share that in my actions? And I was, you know, you had said um, that early before we had recorded too, you were talking about Stephen Levine and I wanted to tell you a, a short story about Stephen Levine. Um, so everyone, Stephen Levine wrote um, the book. We well, wrote many books with his uh, late or his wife, Andrea. I think Andrea might still be here, which is so ironic. Do you know their story that, mm -mm. that Stephen and Andrea met and she was dying of cancer when they mm. met oh, and wow they had such a love story that they fell so deeply in love that the whole time that they lived in their 30 year marriage, she was dying of cancer <laughs> and that he finally passed before her. Is that just amazing? And oh they had God. such an incredible love story. And he wrote this, he wrote many amazing books, um, on death and dying. I think that was what it was called, right? Yeah, I read that one in college and yeah. that's why I learned about him back yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then he wrote this great book, A Year, uh, a Year to Live. And Richard actually was such a Stephen um, Levine fan because his dad brought Stephen and Ramdas to his corporation back in the um, mm. 80s. He had this large real estate syndication company and he would bring Ramdas and Stephen Levine to speak to his company back in the 80s. Wow. And um, so he got to know Stephen quite well and he was reading a year to live um, one day and he sat down and he answered the question that Stephen poses in that book. If you had an hour to live and could make one phone call, who would it be to? And what would you say? Mm. Why are you waiting? And Richard wrote me a 37 page love letter for our 18th wedding anniversary. Oh my God. Answering that question. And I, God, I received that. I was a very, I, it was just like a very interesting moment for me because we we're at our place at Sea Ranch and he pulls it out from behind him and it's, you know, 37 pages. It's quite a love letter. And I handed him a card and I was like, I was like, oh boy, this is a weak moment on my part. But um, I read it and it was just so beautiful. And then Richard um, died three years later. Oh my God. Yeah. After he wrote that. And I mm. published it back to him uh, with my response in it. Oh, wow. Um, in a book called An Hour to Live, An Hour to Love The True Story of the Best Gift Ever Given. And mm. I wrote my response to him in that book because, of course, I was in deep grief. And his gift to me became such an incredible gift that he mm. had left me. And it was so Richard Carlson esque to do something like that. Yeah, prolific. He's so he was so prolific, right? <laughs> so he could write a love letter in thirty seven pages, right? Yeah, but. yeah, and and also just to be sure to not leave any stone unturned. Like mm. the the week that he died, Paul, he actually left that poem that was written after nine eleven. Um, it was about if if you only had one more kind of. If, if this was the last time I ever saw you was the nature of the poem. And it, I put it in an hour to live an hour to love. I printed it in there, but it was such a beautiful poem. And he left that all around our house the week before he died, hmm. um, which was so strange, but he, it was like his parting gift to us. Like hmm. that this was, he, it was like some, some level, some odd level. He knew that his time was running out and and they say a very conscious man, often a super, super conscious man has an inkling mm. that he is mm. going to, his time is running out on the earth and he starts to take care of everything. And that's what Richard did. He started to tie up all loose ends for everyone. Even our dog, um, Ty at the time had a, like he was always the one that gave him his medicine. And when I opened up the cupboard door, I saw that Richard had put a calendar on the mm. cupboard door and he'd just done it with when Ty had gotten his last heart medicine mm. because he always did it and I wouldn't have known. But then suddenly now I knew he had it this last month and went to give it to him every day after that. I mean, wow. just very strange things he did that that showed me that there was some sort of unconscious knowing that what was about to happen, even though he died from a pulmonary embolism on a flight, mm. you know, it was like, he still somehow knew. So, but I think that was so um, incredible that we have that opportunity, right. To, 
say the things, to act from love, to, you know, leave these pieces of ourselves for people that are, you know, going to miss us so dearly, right? Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. It's very emotional. <laughs> I really feel feel it. Yeah, I think uh, I read Stephen Levine's book, A Year to Live, when I was in my early 30s. And uh, my, my wife and I both read it, actually. But I actually kind of started living it. And I also applied that to my work in terms of my advocacy campaigning and movement building. Because I'm a serial justice entrepreneur. Like, I'm always looking for the next idea or the next breakthrough or the next possibility to really get the bold transformational uh, action that I think is possible and urgently needed. So like I like I would do this, like I would I'd be writing a memo or writing a plan or whatever it was. And if I was getting on an airplane, I would send it to people in advance and I didn't follow clearance protocols. You know, I was like, here you go. Here's my latest, you know, and I still do that to this day. Like I make sure someone has my latest whatever so that um, in case my plane goes down or in case something happens, at least and when I was writing my book, I actually remember telling my oldest son, one of my sons actually saying, you got to get this published. If I somehow don't get it out, please get it out. You know, here's the raw material, you know, so I gave access to that. So I think that's an important uh, kind of maybe that is part of revolutionary optimism, too. And I'm 61 now. I had my 60th last year and it was a big deal for me because I'm like, you're entering your seventh decade. You're like you know, when you turn 60, you're actually entering your seventh decade. So it is a good time to look back and go, wow, what an amazing journey. You know, lots of mistakes, lots of failures, lots of successes, lots of joy, you know, holding all of that, you know, the suffering, the struggle and the joy, you know, and recognizing it, it, it has been a journey. And then, yeah, it's like, wow, time's running. You know? So one of my spiritual mentors talked about like our lives as like the months of the year, you know, so we're, we living, we're living through the calendar of life. And so, like you were saying, I'm, I see like, I'm in my September or October years, hopefully, or it could be December 31st. I don't know. You, know, <laughs> you, you just don't know. Don't so know. That, that does like run inside of me as uh, an opportunity to, you know, just do what you feel called to do. So my my soul's uh, journey, my what I've discerned for myself is that my soul's purpose for me is as a healer, a healer. And it seems obvious because I went to medical school. So like I some somewhere I knew that, but I kind of lost track of it as I was doing advocacy. And I've kind of reconnected with that soul's purpose. And so I believe like revolutionary optimism and the and hashtag unify the movement building platform it is my latest medicine, if you will, for uh, bringing healing forward uh, collectively. And I feel like we're in at an auspicious time in human history, and and also as Americans, we're at an auspicious time. The next eighteen months, uh, uh, from June of 2023 through the end of 2024, are going to be. It's going to be a roller coaster ride at best. And, yeah. you know, in that, it is an opportunity uh, for transformation, like for a breakthrough in my mind. I'm living into that as a possibility. Like I call it a Kairosian moment or 
Reverend Adam Taylor gave me that metaphor, like we're living in a Kairosian moment, which is like a moment of possibility where, you know, gyroscopic things can occur and, and transformation can be brought forward. And uh, folks in my community are basically saying we have, a, we're at a fork in the road right now and it's either repair or destruction, uh -huh. you know, and that's like collective. So I'm excited about, uh, you know, just being unbridled with like letting out revolutionary optimism and using that as like a trim tab, you know, as a, uh, Buckminster Fuller talked about the trim tab as, you know, uh, an opportunity to move directly into the currents that oppose it and at, uses the opposition, the adversity and resistance to accomplish the goal. So I've been trying to discern what is my trim tab? My trim tab is asking the question, what would it look like if we put love at the center of our social, economic and political systems? Because everything that the is currently happening is greed driven it's extractive capitalism unbridled it's uh, racist it's anti-feminist it's homophobic it's the opposite of putting love at the center so it is it's so true so that's the trim tab you know just pushing forward like and and there's other people echoing the same thing like you and all the folks that you're connected with many networks are ready i think to usher forward this opportunity, uh, this era of transformation. One of the things that um, Richard said to me after his death uh, in a, uh, through my computer, he used to just come to me and I would be typing away just so fast and things that came through um, from him were, one of the things he said was that the world um, was entering a time that was so mired in ego that all of the teachers of love have to amp the message of love that it has to be amped by every avenue every place everything has to be spoken of love because love will win but it has to be um at the forefront of everyone's thinking because of the of the negativity that that the world could get lost in the the grasp of the mired ego and um and I, I i think that it's so beautiful that people like you are stepping forward people like marianne williamson you know yeah. are stepping forward with this incredible message of love being at the center and in that because somehow i don't know how we've gotten so far from it i really don't i don't i don't understand the turn that america has taken you know i mean i understand why of course I don't really want to get into the politics of it all because it's just, you know, it's so separating to talk about politics. And I, I'm all about, like you, I'm all about unity. I'm all about finding the places that we're alike in our, in our world, not the places that we're different in our minds, you know, not the places where our ego pulls us into separation. You know, we forget mm. about that it's, it's so much ego that makes us separate. It's so mm. much ego that creates this over identification of our identity. You know, when you are not over identified, that means that you just are, you know, you're in mm. the I am place with, mm. you know, without having I am this or I am that or I am Republican or I am Democrat or I am, a, a you know, or I am a doctor or I am a wife or a father, you know, you just are, you're all of it. And mm. 
you know, I, I, I love that conversation so much because it really is at the heart of healing, isn't it? It's really at the heart of what it means to be alive at this time, you know, and yeah, well said. I mean, I, on politics, I would say, uh, in my mind, politics is the competition of ideas. It's like a sport. So yep. there's like all this, like, uh, the, the, the sport of politics is going on over here, which is oppositional and attack, attack, attack. And like, just like put it over there on a TV screen. And then I actually turn it off because like, I can't bear it anymore. And yeah. then there's this space open where you say, our, our idea is to, you know, is to ask the question of what would it look like if we put love at the center of our social, economic, and political systems? There can be a through line from the past that we reap the harvest of, you know, learning and healing that emerged from the past, but we don't want to be bound by that, you know, failed framework because it's was it was it's archaic and it, it's not working now to deal with our current challenges. And we're living in an era of polycrises. We have to face that. You know, we have to re recognize that there is a global climate emergency that is going to threaten all of us. And we have a teetering democracy and we have economic uh, transformation happening. So if we can uh, use this moment as a moment of opportunity to unify our, our intention to put love at the center, then we can recreate everything in a peaceful, loving way. It is healing. And that's why in uh, Unify, we're talking about repair, justice, and peace. There's a lot of damage that's been done over, you know, from the past. Everyone, you know, it's like we have a PTSD global <laughs> community, you know, everyone's dealing with uh, even COVID uh, emergency created like trauma, you know, uh, for all of us. We had a disrupt, it was a disruption to our lives as we knew it. So yeah, I think that I think we're at a moment of possibility, and um, I'm excited to be uh, connecting with like-minded, like-hearted people. And uh, I do agree that Marion Williamson, uh, she's written a book on the politics of love. I interviewed her for my podcast. That show is coming out soon, and I'm inspired by her uh, communications and her messaging. And you know, Unify is a movement that is aligned with that agenda in many ways. And Unify can be present no matter who gets elected as a love force, you know, as a as a mobilization, a movement of stakeholders that are standing for love, putting or standing for asking that question, how can we do love at the center? And uh, yeah, so I don't know. Let's let's we're in the game. You know, we're on the court of this. We don't know when this might all, you know, happen. But, you know, I'm I thought this was an urgent since 1995 personally like so yeah. i'm like i don't know maybe this is the time i don't know have you ever seen the uh netflix film the octopus teacher is that with um the octopus that lives like it shows yeah. the whole yes oh yes. my god that is a phenomenal movie yeah so the octopus the the guy who swims with them learns yes. about them and the octopus are living in shark infested waters yeah. And they figure out survival methods like they invert themselves and put shells and rocks all over them. And they look they do a camouflage, you know. So one of my spiritual teachers said, well, maybe it was the evolutionary force of swimming in a shark infested water that led to the breakthrough for the octopus to figure that out so it could survive. And so I feel like maybe 
humanity is living at that kind of things are getting so bad now that maybe this is the time for the evolutionary leap where we can actually you know move into the uh love at the center driven social economic and political systems because i i agree with what you said actually that that is the soul's yearning that's a that is what connects all of humanity we're all at some deep level that's what is happening inside of all humans i believe yeah and i i think remembering you know that one thing that we are more alike and what we really want than we are different you know is that we all want for our families to have a healthy universe to live in we want our health we want you know we want to live um life with joy you know people all over the world want these same things you know and and all of that really does begin with love you know we we've talked about so many really important things i want to highlight today um just one of them about you know encouraging our ability to understand our own meaning is like holding death close you know like mm. knowing that you're going to die and realizing that you don't know when your time is up helps you really live and and i think that's like at the core of why you wrote your memoir and why you said you know you make sure you send everything you know because you're honoring that you don't know um how long you have on the earth and i i think that's really powerful because I think when we keep our mortality close, and I know my husband did, we tend to live into our lives um, with greater meaning. And, and it's because we don't have that sense that there's a forever time period. You don't have the, the, the forever syndrome where you think a life is just going to go on you know, forever. That's one thing. But I love this message so much. And now I know I why I woke up thinking about you, Paul, and why I wanted to have you. I, we, we literally, like, I woke up and I said, I want to have Paul Zeitz on my podcast. And, and I reached out to him and he was able to reschedule so that we could have this conversation because I, too, feel this sense of urgency for the planet. And I feel that sense that we all need to amp this message that love really can be at the center of all we do. And I think I want to just leave you all just with um, the idea that you really need to go listen to Paul's podcast, Revolutionary Optimism. And he's going to have some great people on there. And he's just got such amazing ideas. And it will be so encouraging and so hopeful at a time in our lives, in our world where we need hope. We need these messages of hope. And I agree with you that optimism is contagious. And it's like happiness. When people are happy, happiness is also contagious, yeah. isn't it? That's a good one. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And bravery is also contagious. Uh, and cor being cor courageous, you know, it also like when you're courageous, everyone goes, Oh, maybe I can be courageous that way, too. You know, it's, uh, so that's all we're doing, right? We're just living into our soul's purpose. And that is that is brave and courageous. You know, when you take off the veils and you just go for it with that death awareness or mortality awareness, as you say, um, that's really, that is a really important factor. I totally agree. Yeah. So thanks everyone for listening. Please check out Paul. Um, go to his website, unifyingmovements.org. 
listen to his new podcast. I'm so excited about it and revolutionary optimism and allow it to be contagious in your life. And always center on love. I love that message so much. Just allow your life to revolve around how you can be more loving today. Paul, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been wonderful chatting with you. You're just, I, I just can't wait till the next time we talk. I know. Thanks, Chris. It was a great honor. Thank you for all you do. Oh my gosh. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. Don't sweat the small stuff. We are living the big stuff. This is Christine Carlson. Please share this with your family and friends. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author Christine Carlson. You're invited to join Christine at one of her upcoming retreats in California, including her popular What Now Women's Retreat at Sea Ranch and her new Revive and Thrive Mental Health and Wellness Retreat at Mount Shasta. Get all of the retreat details today at christinecarlson.com.